All right, welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show. I'm here with Stephen Charlap, who is an MD and the founder and CEO of Soap Health. Soap Health is a B2B SaaS company servicing healthcare providers and um, medical providers with, from what I see, a suite of different tools and products that help them, um, you know, streamline their their task and 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 leverage AI and generative AI to to do more work and to focus on the things that that they enjoy and that they should be working on. Um, and so today we're going to dive into a little bit on their go to market, how they're going to market, lessons that they are learning that hopefully will provide some nuggets to other B two B SaaS founders, maybe some mistakes that they made um, that they're willing to share so other people can avoid them. And so, uh, Stephen, thank you for taking the time. Glad to be here. Happy to help your audience. <laughs> Did I get the kind of, let's say, tagline or what you guys do roughly right? Or how, how far off am I? Feel free to kind of correct me on exactly what you guys do at Soap Health. Yes, I say you were roughly right. Uh, yesterday, I was sitting with a physician and I said to him that within six months, Soap believes that it will have built the equivalent of your average primary care physician as a primary care physician AI doctor. And his immediate response, are you looking to replace doctors? And I said, absolutely not. I'm simply looking to build groundbreaking technology that can improve diagnosis in the United States. And how doctors choose to use it and how others choose to use it, that's ultimately up to them. We're just simply trying to perfect the technology that will allow patients to get the right diagnosis sooner and the right diagnosis and maybe even prevent disease when possible. Amazing. And so like maybe to flesh it out a little bit, to give one example, I think that I saw on your website is that physicians, one of the things that they need to do is when they take in a patient is that they need to interview them, right? To understand the medical history and, you know, what things they're struggling with and what they've tried before. And that takes a long time. And especially if you, you know, necessarily don't want to spend hours talking to that person or, you know, dig into every little detail, it might, you might miss on important data that will actually help you serve that patient to the, you know, best possible, possible outcome. And so one of the features or products in your suite, as I understand it, is basically an, a an AI assistant that will interview the patient for the, the physician and ask all the important and relevant question and digs deeper into certain things. And so then they, you know, they can save that time and they get a full record of all the information that maybe they might've not dug out by doing the interview themselves. Is that like an example? Yeah, absolutely. Look, when doctors spend time with patients, they historically used to spend a lot more time. They were a local family doctor. They knew the parents, they knew the siblings, they knew the children, et cetera. They didn't have to gather as much information as today where patients are strangers to the doctors. And so uh, doctors need to maintain uh, a living and they need to see a certain number of patients a day in order to do that. And that really precludes, other than under perhaps a concierge model of spending a lot of time with a patient, asking detailed questions about family history, social determinants of health, mental health, quality of life, social factors, lifestyle factors, in addition to information about symptoms and the history of the present illness, a good intake 
could take uh, as much as 30 to 45 minutes. And most doctors are spending the entire appointment at roughly 15 to 20 minutes. So how do you get that additional information? The answer is most doctors simply don't. And so they can typically get to the right diagnosis without knowing everything about you, except when they don't. And in fact, every 2.6 seconds here in the United States, a misdiagnosis happens. And every 40 seconds, somebody dies or is permanently disabled. And our National Academy of Medicine now predicts that everyone is going to experience a misdiagnosis. So given those facts and facts about how often doctors get sued because they misdiagnose, et cetera, it's incredibly important that we improve uh, diagnostic accuracy. And that begins with getting a great interview. And so we built the perfect medical interviewer. Uh, it took some nine years to get it to this level of high quality effectiveness. And it's a digital human. You might say a robot on a screen that's talking to you, looks like a human, talks to you, allows you to talk back 100% conversational, 100% voice conversational. And it deploys several methodologies that virtually guarantee that it's going to get a more accurate response than a human. It's going to get a more truthful response and it's going to get a more complete response. So all said, we believe that today it's already at a level that it's higher than the average doctor in taking a comprehensive personal and family medical history. Right. And when did you found this company? Four years ago, four plus years, four years ago. 2019. Yeah, but before I found it, I spent three plus years at Stanford and two years at Harvard preparing to found the company, really studying and getting a foundational basis in conversational AI, understanding the challenges of doing, using the right technology to use within the application. So there was a lot of iterations. There was a lot of learning. Uh, and that's why we believe we've built the world's uh, greatest product for this use case. And we have a patent issued on the broad use of a digital human as a medical interviewer. Very nice. And obviously you're an MD yourself. So I'm sure lots of, you know, kind of pain points and problems and how you solve it is informed by your own kind of um, history there. So um, just to put this in perspective, you guys raised the seed round. Um, you're at the early stage um, building out traction. I'm a, is it to shift gears now to the go-to-market, are you guys selling to hospitals, you know, big healthcare providers? Are you selling to individual physicians? Like who's your, who's your customer? So interesting enough, right now, our biggest customer is the National Cancer Institute that gave us a contract to improve cancer risk assessment in the primary care setting and we're working with two large hospital systems pursuant to that contract. But we actually don't have a single salesperson on our team because we are spending all our money on perfecting this product. We raised three and a half million dollars. We still have a chunk of it left. Uh, we've been very cost effective. We're 35 people. You're probably wondering how we get it done. Uh, we have a strong team uh, offshore and we are continuing to perfect the perfect medical interviewer risk view, which is the world's most comprehensive risk assessment that includes a differential diagnosis, uh, doing other analysis of the data. We've just partnered with a couple of outside companies that give us the ability also to do some harvesting of data within the existing electronic medical record and other sources of data. 
harvesting the data, normalizing the data, presenting it to the patient. This is the most advanced tool of its kind in the world. Uh, and again, within six months, we think we're going to have built the equivalent of an average primary care physician. So I'm curious, the, you guys obviously leverage AI and generative AI, and obviously there was a big kind of boom in the last, I would say, two years with ChatGPT launching. Was that a pivot in the kind of positioning and product when this change happened? Or was this already like a longer term strategy and you kind of now happen to be in the AI space as it's kind of, you know, in that boom phase? Yeah, no, I've been in conversational AI for nine years, uh, probably one of the people in the country with the most extensive experience, having used several different applications, both from the big tech companies and smaller sources. And what the large language models have really done of late is allowed us to accelerate uh, the product. So, you know, we were moving along, we were doing well, but now, as I have mentioned a couple of times already, we think that we can achieve greatness now within six months, you know, equivalent to the average in 12 months, equivalent to the best primary care and in 18 months, superior to any primary care doctor on the planet. And so you guys don't have any salespeople, you're a startup. How did you manage to land the, what is it? The Harvard Cancer Association? What is it? National Cancer Institute. National Cancer Institute. That sounds like a big deal. How do you land a customer like that when you're a startup with no salespeople? Well, they had a request for a proposal and we submitted it. It was a very competitive process and it's a very prestigious contract. But we have a truly state-of-the-art uh, platform. Uh, it was born out of a mission uh, in memory of my older brother, who was a cardiologist who died due to a misdiagnosis. I also lost a dear friend, my wife's best friend, to a misdiagnosis, and I even lost my own life to a misdiagnosis. So you might say I'm very determined to solve this problem because it's touched me personally. Uh, and since starting so, so many people share with me personal anecdotes of being affected or knowing somebody who's been terribly affected by misdiagnosis, and I think the technology we're building is going to solve this problem in a very significant way. So we don't have salespeople, but we have contracted with many connected people in healthcare who are making introductions on our behalf. But because I'm first a physician and second a business person, the first rule of medicine is first do no harm. And so while we've published a study with Stanford and we've done a couple of other pilots from inner city Miami to rural Alabama, we're looking for more data because these are patients and these patients' lives are at risk. And so we need to not have an MVP. We need to have something that's perfect. It's almost like an autonomous vehicle. It can't get into an accident, okay? Because if it does, somebody's going to crucify the manufacturer. So our goal is to perfect this where there's no doubt that it did the right thing every time for every person. How much do you feel like your credibility as a founder and CEO given that you are an MD yourself and, you know, you mentioned you've been at Harvard and Stanford before, how, how important is that for, you know, building the trust with, with prospective customers and with, you know, um, you know, landing that, that massive client or customer? Yeah. Well, first for the record, I didn't mention that I was at, uh, I mentioned Harvard and Stanford later in my career. I actually uh, also have an MBA from the, the business school. 
Look, you know, credibility is a very interesting thing. Um, I often say that there are many innovators in healthcare, but healthcare itself is not very innovative. Uh, it's pretty risk averse, and that's kind of counterproductive for innovation. And so the only way to get true credibility is to demonstrate, is to have data that clearly demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that your application does what it, what you claim it does. And that's why I've been very focused on collecting that type of data. And, you know, it takes a lot of time to get good data. There's a proper way to do it and improper way to do it. We're trying to do it a proper way. When we talk about saving doctors time, we're not just talking. We're using clockwalk stopwatches to do analysis to demonstrate how long it takes them pre-use of our product and how long it'll take post-use of the product. The long and short of it is... We're a bit of a contrarian because most companies try to get their product out as quickly as possible as a you know minimum viable product and then improve upon it. But how do you do that when somebody's health and welfare is at stake? And MVP, I think, is inappropriate in healthcare in the in the medical practice setting. And that's why we have to keep building it to a level that it becomes both indisputably as good as we claim. It is an indispensable to the physician and the medical practice as it should be. That's the challenge. Even to get that data, you still need early customers, right? Who, who put a level of trust into you that you maybe at this point can't fully back up with, you know, big amounts of data, right? Right. But we're not charging people right now to use our product as pilot sites. Um, et cetera. And under the National Cancer Institute contract, we're actually paying the patients to participate. And the long and short of it is I am determined to build something that works more than extremely well, is recognized for its reliability and trustworthiness, and actually saves millions of lives of people I will never meet. I tell every member that joins our team, every single person who's part of SOAP, 35 of us, have met with me individually. And what we talk about is our life-saving mission. That's the most important thing. And that's probably why we've had virtually no turnover. In fact, we haven't lost a single engineer in three years. So I think that's a testament to people realizing that they're part of something greater than themselves. And each is a valuable contributor to something that might affect them, their family, their friends, their neighbors, people in their city, colleagues, countrymen, women, countrywomen, etc. People across the globe, they'll never meet. Right. Um, I'm curious. Okay, so you're, it, it sounds like you guys are still mostly focused on building the product, gathering the data, build the case for, you know, backup. Uh, the claim of how useful your product will be. I'm curious, what have you learned as a as an MD building a technology company, right? I mean, is it just about finding the right CTO who knows the technical side or, you know, what are, what are maybe some lessons or mistakes, um, things that you wish you've known before you've gotten into the, you know, software or technology business for, for maybe other founders who don't have a background in, you know, software development or computer science or the technical aspect of things. Right. So first, let me just clarify We have a product that works, okay? It's not an AI doctor yet, but it still does what it does extremely well. People who use it acknowledge that it does what it's supposed to do. And it's available for piloting immediately, okay? 
Coming back to lessons learned, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of lessons. Um, don't work with engineers overseas that you haven't been personally introduced to. That's a big lesson. You know, there are people that contact me virtually every day on LinkedIn and say, we have this great shop. We've been around forever. We have 350 people who work for us, but they don't have a reference of somebody that I know. And so far, every attempt to work with people that I don't know uh, overseas has not worked out, both in India, both in uh, Europe. Uh, we're now in South America where I was introduced to people who introduced me to people. And so that has worked out exceptionally well because I got personal recommendations to work with those people. And then we built from there. So that's lesson number one. Don't work with people you don't know. Uh, they weren't personally introduced to you. The second lesson is, it's a lesson I'm ignoring, but it's a good lesson, I think, for many people. Uh, don't swing for the fences because people who swing for the fences typically strike out more often. Now, because I'm a more senior entrepreneur and I've had my success and I can afford to take maybe more risk than somebody that's got a wife and two kids or a husband and two or three kids that they have to take care of, um, I am trying to build something the world's never seen, something truly exceptional. Uh, I've already built that. Uh, we have a patent on the broad use of a digital human as a medical interviewer. We have a patent pending on combining risk and symptom assessment. We have a patent pending on a new way of diagnosing. We have a patent issued on a new way of visualizing family disease risk. But as you've heard me say now repeatedly, uh, I still want to pilot because I still want to build something exceptional. I still want people to say, this is truly one of a kind uh, and one of the greatest advancements in digital health technology in the 21st century. But my advice to others is don't build products like that because it's a hit or miss at the end of the day. I am confident we're hitting, uh, but it's a lot easier to start with something that you can come out with an MVP, sell it, get people to use it, get your feedback, improve upon it, etc. I have a son who always tells me, test, test, test. And I, I do try to test, test, test. But I think a lot of people don't appreciate that there's a responsibility as a physician not to put technology that doesn't work exceptionally well. So uh, I actually did that early on. We did a pilot with Stanford. The pilot, uh, the software was fairly buggy. We still got pretty impressive results, but we would have gotten even better results if uh, we had a test of buggy software. Unfortunately, it was under a controlled environment, but God forbid we would have put that in front of live patients. Uh, that would have been scary. I mean, I guess in your space, Theranos is a, <laughs> it's the shining beacon of how not to do things. Well, they, you know, they're, they're typical of over-promising and under-delivering. Okay. You know, it was, it was, um, well, and fraud, large, large amounts of fraud in that company. I mean, anyone who knows me knows from my first company, I was obsessed about complying with the law uh, and making sure that the doctors who were part of our organization always did the right thing. Uh, and in my second organization, we again we followed very high standards. And I like to quip that when I was a poor kid from Brooklyn, uh, I tried to be highly ethical. And now that I'm not war anymore. I no reason not to be ethical, uh, not to put other people's needs and considerations uh, in front of my own sometimes. Uh, it's not to, not to say that I'm just a selfless individual. I'm not. 
Uh, I've got my own selfishness, but the long and short of it is I am generally interested in helping other people. And from where I come from, we call it Tikkun Olam. It means building a better world and leaving the world a better place than we found it. So you said your second lesson was to not swing for the fences. Does does that mean to to bootstrap? Because I, VCs want you to shoot for the fences, right? Because that's the only way that they can make their economics work. So you can't really go to a VC and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm not trying to build a big, massive company. I'm trying to build something kind of, you know, I'm trying to be reasonable here. Yeah, there's two ways to look at venture capital. Having a smaller piece of a bigger pie or owning a, a smaller pie, Okay. There's no guarantee in any approach. You can bootstrap and you can raise venture capital. I mean, there have been spectacular venture capital funded failures, Theranos being a good example. And there have been spectacular bootstrap companies, uh, Epic EMR systems uh, owned by an individual in Wisconsin. Uh, as far as I understand, never raised outside money. She's a multi-billionaire right now. She sells multi-billion dollar systems to large healthcare systems. So the reality is both approaches can work and both approaches can fail. You've got to do what you're comfortable with. Uh, my first company raised venture capital. Uh, they tortured me for 19 years. Yes, they were with me for 19 years. They got an outsized return, uh, a double-digit 19-year uh, IRR, uh, double-digit X uh, return on uh, absolute capital. Uh, but it was a tough relationship at times. And so you went for it again. Well, I haven't. I've taken venture capital only from a person that I knew pre previously, and I knew this person's character, and I knew that uh, he would always be ethical. And so I, again, aspire to the same level of behavior. And so I appreciate that in others. Um, I've talked to a lot of venture capitalists. Many have passed on us. The other advice I would give is venture capitalists are not seers. They don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and they make mistakes, both in who they fund and who they don't fund. And I don't take it personally. Uh, my philosophy is fall down seven times or knock down seven times, get up eight. Every time something goes wrong, I say it to myself and I keep going. So uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you got to be able to get knocked down and get up again. Having had that first company and what it sounds like having had a successful exit, what were some of the things that you decided that you would do differently, you know, having gone through that experience and I'm assuming having made lots of mistakes, what were some of the things that you said in my second company, in my second iteration, these are some of the things that I'll approach differently? Yeah, well, actually, I made more mistakes in my second company than I made in my first company. Because interesting enough, in my first company, I saw the value of technology and, and built groundbreaking mobile multi-specialty electronic medical record system. In my second company, I took a low-tech approach, which was far more expensive uh, and far more ultimately uh, problem, problematic. And the advice is we now live in a technology age. Don't apply technology, don't let technology be the tail that wags the dog, understand the problem you're trying to solve extremely well, extremely well, and then apply the best technology out there, which may or may not include AI to this problem, and that increases the likelihood of succeeding. So the lesson learned is be more cost-effective. I was very cost-effective in my first company, not so cost-effective in my second company. Like everybody, I developed some hubris from my successful exit, uh, and I ended up um, throwing money away. 
that could have been avoided. So now we're, even though we raised rents capital, we still act like we're bootstrapped. Um, and uh, we try to get value for every dollar we spend. And that's been our modus operandi. So I think it's a good philosophy to never be frivolous with money. Always use your money carefully. Uh, raising money from venture capital does not validate your business. It merely means you validated your business with a venture capitalist. The only group that can validate your business are your customers, which is why, by the way, we just applied and were accepted into a program sponsored by the National Institute of Health, where they will pay us to go out and do some market research and uh, what I call uh, early sales in identifying the best product market fit for our uh, application. So even though I have all this experience, yeah, I still believe in market research. How do you think about product market fit? Like what, what are the things you're looking for? What are the signals you're trying to see? When do you feel like you've reached product market fit? Like just how do you think about it as a founder and the journey of getting there? Yeah, look, you know, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but it really comes down to for there to be a good product market fit from my perspective, I have to believe that we have built something that truly is going to benefit the market, something the market really needs, a problem that is potentially a hair on fire problem that needs to, the fire needs to be put out, that people can't function without this product, that it's a game changer, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm the toughest critic of the application. I, I work a ridiculous number of hours, seven days a week, 12, 13 hours a day, often. And uh, when I believe the product is absolutely ready, I'm extremely confident the market will agree. So it's one of those, if you build it, they will come. It's a risky approach to business, okay, that you don't validate and vet your customers every step of the way. We try to do that. Uh, by doing these pilots, but we still have to have a certain amount of confidence in our own experience, in our own knowledge, in relationships and discussions, in readings and studies that support you. You know, I always tell people it's not nice to BS other people, but it's really damn stupid to bullshit yourself. So I try very hard to avoid confirmation bias and cogn cognitive bias and truly understand if what we're building is exceptional. How, what's your best guess on how long it will take you to get there? Where is there? <laughs> where, where you're happy, where you're like, yep, we, we nailed it. This is it. I think in six months, I will be at the first level of happiness. First level of happiness. <laughs> where I, again, believe that we will have accomplished building the equivalent of an average primary care physician's human capabilities into an AI product. Again, we today interview better than most primary care doctors. We do risk assessment better than any primary care doctor. It's 500 algorithms taken out of 16 sets of medical association guidelines. We do differential diagnosis. We believe on par with average doctors. You know, there's still some unbelievable diagnosticians. You know, we're the, we're the equivalent to chess computers when they beat just about everybody except the masters, okay? And even when... Uh, Big Blue was uh, playing uh, against Kasparov. It took another decade before Big Blue and other computers really handedly defeated the chess masters. You know, today it's no contest. 
but it didn't happen overnight. I think it'll happen faster than it happened in chess, but it takes time. This is why I think it will take us 18 months to build something that's better than any primary care doctor. And I keep saying primary care because specialties are more complicated, more nuanced, uh, more tests to be done, more tests to be uh, analyzed. In primary care, I mean, it's complicated. You got to know a little bit about everything. You've got to know a lot about many things. But I think using what we've built and what I've learned over 40 years in healthcare and nine years working on this particular project and the time spent in these top academic medical centers and the pilots we're doing uh, and the continued iteration, we're going to get there. And again, let me be, say this for the record. I've got no desire. I've got no animus towards any doctor or primary care doctor. I'm still licensed. My best friends are doctors. My investors are doctors. Uh, I just want to build something that makes misdiagnosis a bygone. I mean, it must be exciting, you know, working on this for nine years and, and now maybe six months out from, you know, being reaching a point where where you're happy, where you reach the first stage, the first level of happiness about your product. Maybe you don't think about it at all yet, but um, go to market, you know, when in six months you are ready and you have the product at a stage where you're confident that you want to put it, like really put it into people's hands. I know right now you already have customers and you already have pilots and there's already people using it. But when you try to really go to market, like how do you think about it? How to approach it, where to be, you know, like broadly speaking. Yeah, I understand the question very well. And I'll tell you, it's an interesting question. It's a good question because now that it's within reach, my intensity level is starting to go through the roof. Why? And I said this to my team uh, every two weeks, I make meet with the entire 35 people at SOAP and we talk about what's going on. And I said to them this past Friday that you may have noticed that over the last few weeks I've become more intense. And the reason is because now it's within reach. It's real. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Creatively and technologically, we have figured it out. We know exactly what we need to do to get there. And suddenly it's like Diane Nyad swimming and seeing the Florida coast. Okay. When she swam from Cuba to Florida, suddenly she sees the coast. And after failing multiple times, she says, Oh my God, I am in a position to build something unbelievable in her case to, to achieve something that no one had ever achieved before, not man or woman, something she had already tried four times and failed something she had tried when she was a much younger woman and failed. Imagine the, the fear that grips you when you say, this is now mine to lose. I could screw this up if I don't deliver because now it's a deliverable. Before it was a hypothetical. That is nerve wracking. So how do you think about the go-to-market? I think demonstrate to physicians that one, you can integrate with their EMR. We're doing integrations with Epic and Athena right now. Demonstrate that other people who use the same EMR as them are using the EMR and using the product and have nothing but good things to say about it. And third, demonstrate with scientific data that your application does what you say it does because there's so much hyperbole out there about what it's going to do, what historically was called vaporware. Everybody describes to me what their product does, only to find out that the product doesn't do it. I literally describe what the product does. 
what it does today. Okay. As you notice, I didn't tell you what it's going to do in six months. I just told you what it, it's going to be the equivalent of, right? Because I don't talk about what it's going to do. I talk about what it does. And right now it does an unbelievable interview, more accurate, more truthful, and more complete. Right now it does the world's best risk assessment. Why is that important? Missing risk factors is the number one reason for misdiagnosis. And what's the two most common misdiagnoses? Missing early cancers and heart disease. And what are the top two killers in the United States? Heart disease and cancer. So arguably, misdiagnosis is the number one killer in the United States. So this is a big deal, okay? And I'm the type of person, it's like when I coach basketball, as a game near the end, that's when you're worried. When when you're, the game is in the middle, you, you're doing the best you can. You're not worrying about it. You're coaching as well as you can. You're using uh, the team as effectively as you can. It's near the end of the game, like watching the Super Bowl yesterday. I was nervous for the coaches because one of them was going to win and feel ecstatic and one of them was going to lose and didn't care that they even got to that point. They were going to feel like a loser. It just, it was inevitable. So right now I feel like I could win, but who knows, something could go wrong and I could lose and I will feel devastated that I failed to deliver something that would save so many lives. So going back to product market fit, which I know is the theme of this podcast, to me, give people not only what they want, but also what they need. And that's, again, contrarian to what everybody else says, give them what they want, okay? Henry Ford once said that if he gave his customers, although it's dubious he ever said it, it's attributed to him, that if he gave his customers what they wanted, that would have been faster horses. No one was walking around saying, Henry, I need a car. They needed to build roads for the car. They needed gas stations for the car. They needed repair shops for the car. They needed tires for the car, right? That didn't exist yet. Yeah, they had horse and buggies that had nice leather seats, okay? And you could crank them up for a while, but it wasn't the car as we think about it today, and even today with the charging stations, okay? You needed something vastly superior. So while other people are focused on giving people what they want, which is faster horses, we're giving them what they want and don't know yet, but what they need is cars because they're much better than horses. Now, if you're horse and buggy at Central Park in New York, great. Give them a faster horse, okay? Stronger horse that can pull more people, whatever it is. But we're building the cars of the future. Do you plan to do founder-led sales in the beginning, given that you don't have salespeople, or do you plan to hire a sales force? Eventually, we'll hire salespeople. Why? Because salespeople have a particular set of personality traits that allow them to build very strong human relationships. They know how to speak to people. They know how to understand people's wants and needs. They know how to find if there is a true match between what they are selling and what that person is willing to buy. That's not me. And that's not anybody else on my team for that matter. So eventually we need those type of people who can walk in the door and listen to a customer and understand the customer's wants and needs, translate how our application can meet their wants and needs and actually consummate a sale. I've trained a lot of salespeople, I've read a lot of sales books, but I am not naturally a salesperson. And so I appreciate someone who has a skill set that I don't have. Well, Stephen, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think there was a lot of uh, interesting nuggets in here and I wish you all the best in that, you know, in six months, the all this work pays off and that 
Well, maybe it takes a little longer, but that would be fine too. But you know that yeah. with the shore in line, you know the the shore in sight that you don't, you know, drown. <laughs> so uh, I wish you the best of luck and thank you for taking the time today. All right, I hope I've shared something useful. Thank you.